this is Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used for preaching, especially here at the First Free Methodist Church of Seattle, or for anyone looking to dive deeper into the Bible. Today's passage is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. It's the basis of the sermon here at First Free Methodist Church on January 8, 2023. It's the first message in a series called Value the Difference, which focuses on the values Christians hold, not only here at First Free Methodist, but the values Christians hold everywhere. And today's value, the value we focus on, is the value of life. And so to do that, we turn to a familiar passage of Scripture in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. This particular passage is uh, the concluding section of the first creation story. And so we want to start first by looking at just verses 26 and 27 together. It says this in the New American Standard Bible. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every crawling thing that crawls on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So this passage uh, brings to conclusion the first creation story. This first creation story starts in Genesis 1.1, and it really exists more as a poem or a liturgy to describe God's acts, God's act of creation. It follows a certain kind of meter, a certain kind of form in which it unfolds the story through seven days of creation. Now, I'm of the opinion that we're not to take these days literally, but rather they're a literary device in this text that helps us understand more about God and more about who we are than the actual mechanics of how everything was actually created. The second creation story begins at chapter 2, verse 4. And this is a very different story of creation uh, than the one we have here. So I think it's important to not mix the two stories together, but rather each let each story tell its own story. And in this particular case, we're in this, uh, this liturgy or poem that begins in Genesis 1 that highlights how God created the world in seven days, and we're on the sixth day of creation. Now, the sixth day of creation starts off, interestingly enough, in verse 26. It says, then God said, let us make mankind. So there's a hard pause here for everyone when they read that verse. They say, let us. Well, who's the us? Why is it plural and not singular? There's a lot of debate around this, and there's probably 10 different scholarly opinions on what this particular uh, verse might mean, uh, where it mentions, let us. Uh, the meaning that I lean into is the meaning uh, that was defined, I think, primarily by Karl Barth, the beginning of the 20th century, where he really states that what it means for God uh, to have this self-description of let us is that there's this relational nature to who God is. God is in relationship to God's self, and God is also in relationship to the heavenly host. God is in relationship to everything that has been created. So the us in this particular uh, instance is probably leaning a little bit more into God's description of uh, self-deliberation or 
uh, addressing the heavenly host, if you will, that God is somehow speaking uh, in a way that is inclusive of all that there is or all that exists. So the us is not just God alone, but in all things. Then the text goes on to say that that humankind or mankind is made in, again, the plural, our image according to our likeness. And again, there's a lot of debate about what this means. And I'm going to lean back into uh, Bart, who helps us understand that the idea here, again, is relational, that it doesn't mean that when we look in a mirror, we're looking at what God looks like. Rather, we're looking at it from the standpoint of being relational beings in the same way that God is a relational being. So to be made in the image of God is to be in relationship. Other theologians, Paul Tillich and others, call this the I-thou relationship, that there's this way in which we understand God primarily in relationship, uh, and that's not so much that we understand God as a concept or an idea, but we, we know God by relating to God. And it also has to do with this image that is related to responsibility and authority, that there is something of God that God gives to human beings that God doesn't give to anything else in all of creation. And it is this responsibility and authority. So this image or being made in the image of God makes sense into relationship with God and the responsibility and authority with God because of what follows. If we keep reading the text, it says, that, that humans, or let them, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky. So there's this responsibility or authority given to humankind that relates to the same way God has relationship with the created order. So the image of God means that we're not only carrying forth this relational way of understanding who God is and all of creation, but we're also carrying with us the authority and responsibility that no other thing in creation, at least in this story, carries that weight. So when it says to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, we have to be careful what rule over means. Care has to be taken that God is discharging this work to human beings and that the image of God is given to us for this work. So in reality, we're given a work here that God held until this verse describes it, until the creation of humankind. So follow me here. We serve as his divine image in the work. Image is about our relationship to God and relationship to creation. So that means that we're to represent that which God represents in stewarding and caring for all that has been made. And then we move to verse 27 where it talks about how um, that we're created male and female. Uh, these words are carefully chosen to refer to sexual sexuality. It doesn't mean men and women. It means male and female. As such, we cannot assume, just based on this verse, that maleness and femaleness are intrinsic in the image of God, that we have to be careful that to not try to reverse interpret what this means. It means what it means for that which is created. It doesn't mean what it means with reference to God. It doesn't mean that God is male and female. That's not the point of what the text is trying to name for us. These are terms that will focus on the procreative act that's going to be explained later in this particular passage. But all of this opens up to us a key passageway. Even as broken and sinful people, 
we bear the image of God. As Wesleyans, or Methodists, we do not hold a view of total depravity that our Reformed or Calvinistic brothers and sisters do. So key to our understanding is that the divine image is not erased in us. It's damaged, it's marred, and among some of the more ancient traditions of the church, we're we're described as bearing a, a disease or an illness, if you will, spiritually, and that our restoration to that full image of God is one of sanctification. It's about restoration. So not as individuals alone, but also as a group, because it's relationships. We're made for community, not aloneness. Why is it that God creates, period, for community? So we're a little less interested as Methodists or Wesleyans in original sin as we are perhaps in what has been accused, uh, the accusation leveled against us, that we're interested a little bit more in original righteousness. So at no point does scripture ever say that this divine image is lost or erased. So every human life, every human life has potential and possibility. Life in all its forms is sacred and filled with wonderful potential. Now we come to verse 28, where we understand some of the implications of what uh, this sixth day of creation is all about. It says in verse 28 that God blessed them and God said to them, the human beings, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, every living thing that moves on the earth. What sets the sixth day of creation apart from all the other days is that God speaks to what is created on the sixth day. So take note, this little nuance, that God, over all the other periods of creation, first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, at no point does God speak to that which is created. But it's only on the sixth day that God speaks to that which is created, that God speaks to human beings. God blessed them. The first act in the Bible that God directs toward humans is that God blessed them and then said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Here's the reason for male and female procreation. Notice it's not man or woman, it's male or male and female. The idea of procreation is at the heart of what this commission is about. Fill the earth. In other words, get everywhere. Uh, expand over all creation. Why? Well, because we're made in the divine image. God's image is everywhere in creation, and so as those being made in the image of God, our work is to be everywhere, and we're to, quote, rule everything as made in the image of God. Please be careful. Rule does not mean abuse and exploit. There is a very special care of the created order that is to be expected from us, for we are to care for the created order and the entire ecology of our lives the same way God does. That opens up a key passageway for us, that God expects mutuality and care for one another and all creation. This text provides a sense of direction for what we do and who we are. We are made responsible responsible for sexuality, responsible for stewardship, responsible for care. Now, all of these things can be exploited and abused by us. 
When we do so, we act in a way that is not consistent with the divine nature. So really, everything is a choice for us. Whether we're going to care for creation the way God cares for it, or whether we're going to abuse it, whether we're going to nurture relationships in life, or whether we're going to destroy it, we're made in the image of God. This is why we learn later in scripture, we're not allowed to build an idol or to erect an idol in the image of God because it blasphemes the thing that God has already made in his image, which is us. So we're not to build like golden calves that we read about later on in scripture. We're not to render any image of God. It's not because God doesn't want there to be an image. God has already chosen that which is in God's image, and that is each and every one of us. When we make idols, when we choose to abuse and destroy creation, when we choose to not live in the way that is the image of God, it defames what God has done in each and every one of us. What makes the Genesis story so unique is that it's in verse 29 and 30. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you, and to every animal of the earth, and every bird of the sky, to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. What's remarkable in this story is God's provision. God has provided all of these things in an ecosystem of self-sustaining life. In all the other ancient Near Eastern traditions, in other words, those religious traditions that competed with the Hebrew or eventually Jewish narrative, people are created to provide for the gods. But what we read in our story that we share with our Jewish brothers and sisters and to some degree with our Muslim friends in verses 29 and 30, that our creation story is the opposite. That every plant yielding seed is for food and is reproducible. Every tree producing seed is for food and is reproducible. Every animal is for food and is reproducible. Everything that moves, every green plant, everything has been provided by God. It's what makes these three great monotheistic religions of the world today completely unique, that the God of the universe has provided these things for us. It opens a key passageway for us here that we need to pay attention to deeply, that God's character for self-giving and self-sacrifice are apparent from the beginning of the creation story. God consistently acts for the sake of the created order. All that there is and all that has life are sacred. At no point in the story do we read about a God who demands some kind of service or sacrifice or any other obligation from us. God instructs and gives intentionally. God does not demand anything for God's own sake. Even the story that will come later in chapter 2 with the prohibition given to Adam and Eve to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that is not an act specifically directed to God. It's not a service rendered to God. It's actually an insurance to keep human beings, Adam and Eve in that case, in relationship with God. 
We must remember this truth if we're to live in the image of God. And ultimately, for for us as believers in Jesus Christ, we believe that Jesus demonstrates fully and completely what it means to be made in the image of God, that Jesus is the perfect revelation of what we're called to be. Uh, The Apostle Paul even will describe Jesus as a second Adam, if you will, that there's a way in which we understand the image of who we're supposed to be based on looking at the life of Jesus himself. This text ends, uh, at least for our work this day in verse 31, it says, And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. God now sees all that has been made. And it's not just good, it's very good. There's an, uh, an adjective in front of good now. It's not just good as all the other days. There's something particularly good about the completion of creation at its sixth day. Part of what's happening here is it's a, a declaration about the creation and the created order that everything that God has made is sustainable. It's reproducing, it's expanding, it's dynamic. This story in Genesis 1 is not static. It's not just a a snapshot in time. Sometimes we look at the product that God has created and we forget at times the created order itself, the ways in which things reproduce and expand and sustain themselves and grow. This is all part of that which God has created. God has just created trees, but a way for trees to reproduce, to expand. God has produced ways for things to be sustainable. Just because things work in ways that we can explain by science and reason does not mean that we own them. This is uh, enlightenment thinking gone awry, if you will. This notion that if we know how something works, it belongs to us. Not true. Knowing how something works is a recognition of how God has built the created order. God states that this goodness of all that's been created is excelling. It's very good. Because, as you've heard it said before, God does not make junk. This opens a key passageway for us, that God's vision for the world is a very good life. Life is to be relished, to be enjoyed, to be experienced. All of these things happen in deep relationship. God creates the created order for all of these things and ultimately for love. And we can suggest and know with confidence as Christians that Everything that exists is a creation of God's expression of love for us. God's intent is that life is to be relished, enjoyed, experienced, lived in community and in deep relationship together. This is our destiny as human beings. If you have comments or reflections, I invite you to visit my website, revcraig.com. Click on news on the upper right-hand corner, and then drop-down menu will pop up that says podcasts. And then you can click on a particular episode and leave a comment. I also invite you to visit our church's website, ffmc.org, firstfreemethodistchurch.org, to learn more about free Methodism 
and how you can connect with our community based here in Seattle. For now, I bid you all grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.